Please turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. On August the 12th, 2009, just one day off from a year ago, I began my sermon this way. I said, I know you were in good hands while I was away. I also feel the fact that I was missed, and for both I am grateful. I wrote, shepherding you well requires that I do soul care too. I'm a human like you, in need of God's grace. I need several weeks to unwind and refresh. It's hard to get away and come back. I read most every day I'm away. Occasionally, I take more naps than normal. I write about stuff I don't take the time to journal about while I'm here preparing sermons. Sometimes we canoe or we fish or we camp or we jog. We spend time with family, reconnect, and even do a little more physical training than normal. God has sustained me through this church from the inception by this church giving me enough time each year to refresh. And I know what a blessing that is. And to some of my brother pastors, what a rarity that is, and for that I'm grateful. I also wrote last year this prayer, and I'm going to say it with my eyes wide open. I wrote, because it's just as relevant now as it was a year ago, Oh God, I'm such a sinner. Again and again and again, I fail to live up to the standard of godliness, and yet you've saved me. And yet you've called me to preach this hour, and to these that you've saved to have ears to listen. Please, please, don't assess the value of this message on the messenger alone. Administer grace to us today, please, a grace that we certainly do not deserve. Shape us by the love of your Son, by the power of the cross, and the preaching of the gospel. In Christ's name, and I think we can say together, amen. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, as one year later we start the second letter to the Corinthians. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ. We share abundantly in comfort, too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. The title of our sermon today is Help Us by Prayer. Our text is verses 1 through 11 of the first chapter of Paul's second canonical letter to the church at Corinth. I say the second one canonically because he wrote four of them that we know about. Two of them are in our canon. It's the second one and the fourth one. The second one references the first one. I'm sorry, the first one references the, the, the letter, first letter to Corinthians in your Bible references the first letter. It's actually the second one. And the second letter of Corinthians references the third one. It's actually the fourth one. So if you think 2-4 for 1-2, you've got it. There were four letters, but two of them make it into our canon. And it's important you know that because they're referenced in the book. There are 257 verses in 2 Corinthians. There's 13 chapters. It spans seven and a third pages in your print pew Bible. It spans 20 pages in these little journals that some of you are using that we've picked up so you can take notes in, circle them, and and keep them. I would like to encourage you, 
as an introduction to this series for you to just take the time this afternoon to read through the whole thing, uh, or at least soon, if not this afternoon. While it's fresh on your mind, just read through it. It won't take that long to read through the whole thing. It's just 257 verses, but it'll give you a sense of the text. I'm going to try to import a sense of the text and what God's trying to convey to us by this text to you this morning. Uh, but I think it would be more powerful as an application if you would walk away and read it on your own. Just read it straight through. Uh, if you want to make a note of something you want to learn more about or go back to, that's fine. But I would really urge you to just get through it and kind of get a sense of the warp and woof of the text. I think it will encourage you. I know it's encouraged me. I think it will challenge you, too. I know it has challenged me. And I really look forward to what God has for us through this series. Now, it is about God from the onset. It's about God. And I'm convinced from this text this morning that we need more of God and less of self. That we need more of God and less of self. God is drawing us out of ourselves and into community. The fellowship that was fractured by the sin of Adam in Eden is being rejoined by God Himself. He has taken the initiative to restore fellowship to reconcile his people to himself. Now, we should not expect this to be easy. The way of the cross never is. But we should expect it to be happening, shouldn't we? God has communicated that it's happening. We need the promises re-communicated to us. God is about restoring fellowship with himself. And this passage is about God comforting those that he's restored fellowship with. My, my, what a privilege to be called children of God. Amen? To be called the child of God, what a privilege. You may approach the throne of His grace with adoration, with confession of sin, with thanksgiving, with requests. It's not just that you may, but many yous may. We may, together and individually. Many of us may approach the throne of grace. He practically begs us to do so in Scripture. Verse after verse, God urges His children to communicate with Him, to talk with Him. We call it prayer. But the struggles are real in our lives. And sometimes prayer is not the first knee-jerk reaction that we have. It's not first to talk to God. Struggles are real. We have to understand that broken fellowship with God is a result of the same fallen human condition that your physical sufferings are a result of. Broken fellowship is not a separate problem from suffering in its germ. God reconciling fellowship is more sharing of himself than anything else. It's a major factor in your comfort during your physical and emotional sufferings too. After all, the Greek word for spirit means comforter. At least it's one of the ways to translate the word family for spirit is comforter. The Holy Spirit is our paraclete, and the word family that, comes to, that brings us the word comfort ten times in verses three through seven in this passage is in that word family. The Spirit is a comforter, and as we are being guided by the Spirit in the exercising of our spiritual gifts with one another, we bring comfort one to another. We learn to comfort. This is not a generic comforting. It's a specific comforting for a specific people. We grow over time to be able to specifically have a window into one another's lives and be able to comfort one another specifically, not just with louder prose, sometimes with softer listening, and fewer rather than more words. God, by His Spirit, guides us to know how to comfort one another because He is the God of all comfort and all mercy, this passage says. More of God, not of self, is what we need so that we have patient prayers instead of anxious actions. If you pursue this help, I believe you'll find deeper comfort in the sorrows that come in life. And I believe you'll find a deeper gratitude for the healthy seasons of your life when you have relative strong health physically and emotionally. This sermon is not a go find yourself some suffering for Jesus sermon. Suffering is an imposter. It is a result of sin. 
It's a result of broken fellowship with God. Know the germ of suffering and do not praise it. Faithfulness does not call us to be aesthetics or soft legalists, always punishing ourselves and never indulging. Jesus was no stranger to fasting, but he was also no no stranger to feasting. I cannot imagine Jesus walking around with a gloom look on his face all the time, looking for a new reason to express his afflicted feelings. This is not a sermon about browbeating yourself into a better life. This is a sermon about what to do when, though your effort to avoid the effects of sin have failed you, you find suffering and you find Christ's comfort. Affliction finds you because of faithfulness to the gospel, to be sure. It finds you because of providential circumstances. It finds you because of inflicted persecution by others that hate Christ in His coming kingdom. Frankly, affliction finds you because of the aging progression of life, if nothing else, doesn't it? Affliction comes your way. But this text emotionally demonstrates, emotionally, how difficult the Christian life can be, even on an apostle like Paul who witnessed the resurrection as a prerequisite for his apostleship. This text shows us the difficulty of the Christian life, but also the comfort of Christ and his people and how it comes to us during difficulties. We aren't to sadistically seek affliction, but it is true, as C.S. Lewis said, that God shouts at us during our times of suffering. Pain is God's megaphone for growth in the Christian life. Most of the great stories in church history that we cling to have threads of affliction in them. Think of Richard Wormbrand, the Romanian pastor, or Dietrich Bonhoeffer during Nazi Germany, or Martin Luther, or John Bunyan, who was imprisoned in England during the time of the Puritans. And think of Thomas Cranmer, who finally got it right and was killed for his faith. Think of you and me. Think of Jesus Christ himself, which is mentioned in this passage in verse 5. The Apostle Paul is no different. His magnitude of service was matched only by his magnitude of suffering. I'm simply saying we should not praise the suffering. We should praise the one that's bringing purpose out of our suffering. That's the distinction I'm making this morning. We are not sadists. We're not stoics either. We are not a people that face everything stoically with a straight face, with an unfurled brow, with no emotion. If the Apostle Paul gets this part of it right, and I think that he does, you have the whole book to think about it. If he gets this right, this is arguably the most emotional letter in the New Testament. So emotional that sometimes the text is difficult to follow linearly because it's up and it's down and it's all the way around. It's hard to outline at times. And at first, that's frustrating for an expositor of the Word. But through many hours of preparing this text and this, this text of text in 2 Corinthians, I've come to embrace the emotional nature of this communication. That there's something about the divine personality being imparted to us by God sharing of, his, of Himself that causes us to appreciate the healthy expression of emotions. Sometimes just the expression of emotions that we might share not only the gospel of God, but also our very selves, as 1 Thessalonians 2.8 says. This text shows us how Christ brings us comfort in the midst of difficult days. We don't just learn deep lessons in prosperous days. As a matter of fact, we don't learn as deeply in prosperous days as we do in times of sickness. And our covenant guides us to commitment even when we are not feeling it. But sometimes we acutely get to feel it. And sometimes God uses the difficult times to help us to feel it. Now, this text itself is a text that introduces a much, much longer train of thought where Paul is defending his apostleship. He's defending his travel plans. He's defending, sometimes it can be difficult to follow because he's defending the fact that they are saying he's suffering too much to actually be led by God. And I think that we know better than that. But I want to try my best to break this into three different thoughts for the remainder of our time so that it's easier to kind of to, to package the things that I'm throwing out kind of buckshot-wise and kind of narrow it down with a slug. And so I'm going to give you three things. God means to bring comfort to you by His sharing communication in verse 1, by His sharing of His self, verses 2 through 7, 
and by his sharing of the covenant community with you, verses 8 through 11. So three things. Verse 1, God intends to bring means of comfort to you through sharing communication. And we're going to think of that as the Word of God. Through his sharing of himself, his very character, his trinity nature, verses 2 through 7, and to bring comfort by his sharing of his own covenant community that he's making for himself a people in fellowship, verses 8 through 11. So let's look together at the very first verse alone for our first point. God means to comfort you by the vehicle of sharing communication. I want you to think about this. this. God self-reveals. He chooses to reveal himself to us. I suppose he wouldn't have to. Is there anybody here that could hold God over a barrel of a gun? Is there any of us that could make God give us holy writ, the Scriptures? Is there anybody that could make Him communicate? The Bible says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, John 1.1. And whenever we open our Bibles to the very first page, we find that God created by communicating. He spoke everything to existence, and it, and it was, and it is, Right? He sustains the world by statement of His very Word. God speaks and it is. Is there a more powerful sovereign than that? Answer, no. God communicates to us, but He doesn't do it in a manner just to scare us, although it can be frightening. God communicates with us in a way to comfort us, to care for us. He communicates on a level in which we can understand He opens the eyes of our heart that we might understand and behold wonderful things from Him by His Word. I understand our desire to have real-world experiences, God moments as they call them. I get that. I understand it. But there's something to be understood as well about Jesus when He tells the people that none sign will be given to them other than the sign of Jonah, which is you must repent. There is a sense in which Jesus' spoken words, and the words that he gives to us by the prophets and the apostles, there is a strong sense in which that book is enough communication for us to abide in Christ and he with us, isn't it? I mean, I sense God moments. Well, often, sometimes I have dry times, like I'm sure that you do too, but, but it's not the quality of the moments that indicates the quality of of the message, is it? That communication that you hold in your hand is from God. He has given us words and praise Him for it. Julie Ganschow said this in the process of biblical heart change. Listen to these sentences. She said, if a person is not being fed the rich, pure Word of God, there will be little spiritual nutrition to help a person to grow and change. A person who is starved of biblical truth will produce poor quality fruit in their Christian life. They will be easily swayed by false teaching and have difficult discerning right from wrong. The tree of their life will be weak and the quality of their spiritual fruit poor. She's speaking of the process of biblical heart change. We need this communication, and God is communicating with us by His Word. And you might say, well, how is it that you arrived at that from this? Well, look at verse 1. The Apostle Paul's biography is a story unto itself, isn't it? You recall he was Saul before he was Paul, and he was persecuting Christians, and there was a Damascus Road experience. The book of Acts tells the story where he was converted to Christ, and Christ identifies with his church's sufferings in such a way that he says, Paul, why do you persecute me? Acts chapter 9 says, and so Jesus is bound up with the sufferings of his people, and Paul is, Saul is so struck by this that he stops persecuting Christians, and he becomes one. And it's so radical that the church at the time had to kind of be given some time to accept the fact that Paul really was converted. It was hard to believe. So this is Paul. And he, as a witness of the resurrection, and as a converted believer in the early first century, is now an apostle. 1 Corinthians 15, from, from 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter talks about Paul's apostleship and the nature of the apostles in the early church. We don't have apostles today like that with a big A. We don't have sent ones that witness the resurrection. Paul did. And as an apostle of Christ Jesus, and this is by God's will, he is communicating 
probably through the helpful scribing of Timothy. There's two letters written in the name of Timothy in the New Testament, and also Titus, who's mentioned in this letter. But Paul and Timothy are apparently together, perhaps from Macedonia, a little north of Corinth, and they are together, and God is leading the Apostle Paul to write a letter to the church at Corinth that will remain in existence in perpetuity. God intended this one in a way that he didn't intend the previous one to exist in perpetuity. We have it because God wants us to have it. We have his communication. And God was guiding Paul to write Scripture, same as Peter and John, to write Scripture, and we have it today. And it says, to the church of God. So it was written not just to the leaders, although some letters in the New Testament are written specifically to the leaders. It was written to the church that is at Corinth. And it is strongly giving a nod then to all the other believers or saints who are at the whole of Achaia, which was a region within southern Greece. Now, I want to just frame this for a little bit longer. We're going to have to come back to the background of 2 Corinthians again and again, or it won't stick. But if you're a note taker and you're journaling, you may want to kind of be drawing off some things and maybe putting a few fast facts down so that you can kind of understand places and people and things as we get introduced to this text. God made Paul an apostle. Paul wrote communication for God. We know it as the scripture today. It is inscripturated. You have a Bible. And he wrote this letter to the church of the day in the AD 50s, the church that Paul had started in his second missionary journey. He's now writing to with deep concern during his third missionary journey. And it is the church that is at Corinth. Now, Corinth had been reconstituted as a city for 80 years. It had been crushed by the Romans, and Julius Caesar reconstituted it as a city in B.C. 44. And now we have this church in the A.D. 50s. It had been about 80 years, about 80,000 people here. It's mainly populated with freedmen, former slaves, also with people that were commercially opportunistic. This was not Athens for culture. This was Corinth for commercialization. This was a place that had developed quite a lot of resources you think of it perhaps as a sort of a Western expansion town, if you want to think of, a, of Americanizing a metaphor. And this particular place had resources, and it also had a lot of sin. There's a lot of sin in this town. As a matter of fact, to Corinthianize was um, kind of a dirty word in terms of describing somebody's bad and lewd behavior, to Corinthianize. So Paul, and think about this, radically converted himself decides to go to this place and share the gospel. And with the help of Priscilla and Aquila and others like, they wind up starting a church. And the church is strong for a bit. And then if you read 1 Corinthians, what you find is they're in need of some serious teaching and some course correction because they're, some, they're, they're kind of mirroring the culture too much. And if you read 1 Corinthians, I want you to think of it sort of like this. 1 Corinthians is kind of a, a factual letter. Uh, you know, hey, guys, do this, don't do that. Do this, don't do that. Remember this. You asked me about this. Let me tell you that. Think of 2 Corinthians as a, a feeling letter. Like, I'm, I'm in pain. I'm, I have suffered. I'm thankful for where you've repented. I'm worried about those of you that have not. Think fact and feeling. And I don't mean to indicate there's no facts in 2 Corinthians. I just want, as you're reading it, I want you to embrace the emotions being expressed by the Apostle Paul. It's not that he doesn't express emotions in 1 Corinthians. It's just that the tenor line of 1 Corinthians is a little bit more, it's just very applicable, like this issue and that issue and this issue and that issue. I mean, we listen to the Lord's Supper and the application of spiritual gifts, and we read in 1 Corinthians about gender and relationships, and we read about idolatry and application for the church and its worship and order and all sorts of just very, very practical things, church discipline. So in this side, we get to 2 Corinthians, and Paul is sort of expressing himself, and he's, he's sharing about his afflictions. And I don't know, there's just an, an everyman, real-world kind of uh, opening his heart wide in hopes that we would open it back that I really appreciate about this. God means to bring comfort to you, number one, by sharing communication. And he does this by giving us letters from the apostles, in particular, in this case, the Apostle Paul, and to a church with saints that have really been converted from darkness to light. I mean, we're all converted to dark, from darkness to light. These Corinthians would have been familiar 
with what God had brought them out of. If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, it says, And such were some of you, and there's this list of sins that sort of exemplified, described the Corinthians prior to their conversion. You used to be that, and now you're this. And so the, God is communicating with us, and His communication, His Word, is a main means of comfort for us. We need to be in His Word as His people. Amen? We need His communication. He intends for it to be for us. Now, before I go any further, I want to take a quick look at some maps that we may come, come back to. Uh, I don't know. that. Are you able to pull one of them? Either one. If you can pull one, I'll use it. Um, okay, so this is not going to be easy for you to see, and I know that. Go, go, to the, go back to that one, though. Go ahead. I just want to show this. We may print these for you in your bulletins in the, in the week ahead so you can slip it into your Bible, but see. There we go. Uh, we have on, this is the Mediterranean Sea, and way over here to your right is uh, like Syria and Jerusalem down here at the bottom. In the very bottom in the middle is Egypt, and when we talk about Corinth, we're talking about the Aegean Sea over here in what we would know as Greece. And modern-day Turkey is known as the region of Asia. So we have Achaia with the city Corinth. Athens would have also been here. And we have Asia. And in our text today, Paul talks about being persecuted pretty badly or something happened to him, some affliction. He's sharing it very openly, and it happened in Asia. And now he's over here. And so the reason I use this one is his missionary journey, this third one, where he finally winds up writing to and then going to see Corinth again, he winds up traveling back across to some of the same pattern before he takes a ship over to Jerusalem and winds up uh, having the seal of his death. Go to the next one real quick. This is just to kind of get the, the, the Sunday school aspect of this out of the way so we know what we're talking about in case some of you are newer to this. This is a zoomed-in area from the northern part of that map that we saw a while ago, and you can see some of the, uh, some of the cities here. I uh, just want to particularly say here's Asia on the right, here's Achaia on the left, and Corinth is in this spot. Uh, you could see Sparta and Athens. Corinth is the town we're talking about. So it had waterways. It had ways to get goods in and out. There were riches. This is the town that these two letters get written to, the church at this town, but really the whole area. He wants them all to see it. And a plug here for the English Standard Version Study Bible that we recommend, and we may have a few copies at the, at the bookstall, but we keep a, a hard copy of it out there for you to see. This is a map that came out of that. And I just want to encourage you, not just in the admonition to read God's communication, but also to understand it. I want to encourage you that the English Standard Version Study Bible can help you with that. It's helped me and my family. I think it will help you too. This map came out of there. So I wanted you to kind of see the geography. One more quick thing. Ephesus is over here in Asia. There was a lot of stuff going on there. The first letter to Corinth came from when he was there. We think probably the second letter that we have in the canon, canonical letter, came from his time up in Macedonia. But he, kind of spoiler alert, a lot of people in Corinth responded to Paul's letters better than when he was in person. And Titus brings the news that is expressed in this letter that those people, those seemingly hard Corinthianized sinners, were repenting of their sin as it was being exposed to them by divine communication. God was communicating with them and they were repenting. And I just want to, before we move on, I just want to say to you that God's communication is not designed to make you see a reflection of yourself alone. God the transcendent communicates to you by his word in such a way that draws you out so that you see your sin and repent of it and change. So God's word is a mirror, but it's more than that. It's designed to help you see God himself. And the reason I think that's so very important is because God's word says that times of refreshing may come over your soul when you repent. So it stands to mean as well differently that if you stay in an unrepentant state that you will not have the kinds of refreshing that you would have as a believer if you would repent of sin. And so that's just a, a, an application here. God wants to comfort you by His communication, but that communication brings an edge to where it exposes you. It pierces joints and marrow, the Word says. And the Bible says in 2 Peter that God is patient with His people, not willing that anyone should perish, but that all would come to repentance. If you want refreshing from from, uh, from times of affliction in your life, if those times of affliction are caused by actual moral sins on your part, then you need to repent. But I'm, gonna, I'm not really going to just dwell on that too much. Uh, you can take the map down if you want to, guys. Uh, because I, I think this text is saying more, not, not so much about sins that, that 
or afflictions rather from sins that we commit, but more just afflictions that come because we are in a, a, a sinful world and afflictions that come because of, of perhaps even the natural process of aging sicknesses and afflictions that come because of our faithfulness to the gospel. In this case, Paul faced afflictions uh, because of his faithfulness to the gospel. And so we see that as well. And so I think it's more about that than, than moralisms. Kent Hughes writes in his commentary, and really it's an introduction to every one of his commentaries, which are excellent, but it's no different than this one. He writes about three things. He says that a good message from Scripture will speak to the logos, the pathos, and the ethos. And you say, I don't know what that means. Let me tell you. Logos is like what we know. It's what we understand. Ethos is, is ethics. It's like how we behave. And pathos is how we feel. What I'm going to, to, to indicate in this series is I think that it is, we have paid attention to and found the importance of what we know and understand, the logos. So important. Propositional truth. And I think that we know, even if we don't always do the right thing, that we must morally and ethically behave in a way that rightly reflects what we've learned from the Scriptures, right? What I'm going to argue is, is that this, this book brings a, a 3D component to this conversation that does not negate the propositional truth of the Word of God, nor does it negate your need to ethically behave in line with the Scriptures morally either, it doesn't negate it. It doesn't undermine it, but it brings it into doability. It brings it into view, 3D, because there is a feeling and emotional component to this full-orbed Christian life where we should feel not only free, but compelled to communicate our feelings and our emotions one to another in the church, certainly with maturity and not, not in a manner of dysfunction that's meant to cripple and to condone people acting in unwise and even cruel manners, but in a way that says, I'm not just sharing the gospel of God with you, I'm sharing my very self. What I want to say is, is there's this 2D approach to how we do church. It doesn't grasp the marrow of books like this. And it's something for me, God's working on me with this, is it's not, it's not to get rid of Lagos, and ethos is not to get rid of those two things, but I think Hughes is onto something. Second Corinthians drives us into the emotions of the writer of the text. It draws us into the emotions of one another. So I just want to say that. I said that he wants to comfort us through his communication. Number two, he wants to comfort us through sharing his very self. Now, I'm going to move a little more quickly through this, but it doesn't make it less important. Look at verse two. It's a standard Jewish benediction or doxology. It's a greeting, but he adds the new covenant verse, grace, to go with what has been brought to us by shalom, or hello, from Hebrew into Irene in Greek. He says, charis Irene, grace and peace to you. It's a standard greeting. It also precursors the benediction of blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so there's a praise element. Bless God. We praise the name of Jesus. We adore Him. It's not just petitions and requests. It's also adoration. It's one of the reasons that we order our service the way that we do, so that our corporate prayers are gospel-focused and even take the shape of the gospel, which includes not just petitions and requests, but also adoration and confession and thanksgiving. It's almost like he says, hello and hello, in an Old Covenant, New Covenant context, from God, and bless God, bless God, the Father and Lord Jesus Christ, so it's Trinitarian. And it talks about the attributes of God, the Father of mercies, look at verse 3, and the God of all comfort. All my help, as the old song says, comes from the Lord. God is the one who gives all real, lasting, ultimate comfort. This point two, God doesn't just communicate with us by his word, his propositional truth. He communicates with his very self. And he communicates his attributes to us and how he, communi how he does business with us. He, he doesn't just crush us. He actually communicates with us in ways that we can understand. He's merciful, and he is the comforter. He is the paraclete. This word comfort is mentioned 10 times in these verses. Look at verse 4. He comforts us in our affliction. Doesn't always get rid of it. He comforts us in it. Think of Joseph in Genesis, comforted in affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. So the purpose of the comfort is that we might be comfortors. Right? The purpose of the Spirit in us is that we might demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit for others. It's not just for us to consume and just always to be heard. It's also to give and to serve. It says, 
with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And verse 5 says, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. As we share in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. This is not sharing in Christ's atoning death on the cross. This is speaking of sharing in the service toward the cause of Christ, which inevitably bumps up against the kingdoms of this world, and Christ's kingdom causes us to be caught in the crossfire and wind up getting harmed and afflicted and persecuted ourselves. It is, in fact, the kind of affliction we face because we live for Christ, and we understand that to live for Christ is Christ, and to die is gain. If we are afflicted, what we find here is that we are getting to share in Christ's sufferings. And it's probably not so much if we are afflicted, it's when we are afflicted, right? I mean, it's been said that we're either in an affliction or heading into affliction or just coming out of an affliction. We don't really really get away from affliction for very long in life. But sometimes we have healthy seasons for which we can be thankful. And so we shouldn't always say, woe is me. It says here, though, that there's something about God sharing of himself and, and conveying to us Christ's very sufferings that helps us to get through our sufferings, too. See, I don't know, and this is something I borrowed from John Stott, but I don't know if I could worship a God who was immune to pain. I mean, think about it. God, this is, our, this is the Christian religion. This is what sets us up as fundamentally different than any other religion in the world. God is personal as well as almighty, and he sent his son to get involved in our pain and suffering. So it's Christ showed us the way to faithfulness for sure. He's the prototype. He's the only one that never sinned, and so he took on our sin for us. That's the gospel. And if you're an unbeliever here in the house this morning, the first thing that you repent of is your rebellion against God and you receive Christ's gospel, what he did on your behalf. That's how you become a Christian. And it really is how you become a Christian. Bless you. You call upon the name of the Lord to receive that gospel. For believers in here, we have to stay with that gospel in the sense that when we come into difficult situations, and we will, and when we come into times where it's just we have to patiently endure, Christ is the prototype for patience in suffering. Christ is our exemplar in that way. And that's what verse 5, I think, is here for, is that we need to go back to the playbook of Christ and the way of the cross when we are trying to be comforting to those in the membership that are going through afflictions. Why don't you all pray for Una Kuhn today? Pray for Miss Una. Pray, Pray for June Russell today. Would you pray for June? Pray for, as an example of everybody on our prayer list and everybody that you know that is sick and they're sick, Physically, they're believers, and they're, they're, they're wrestling with this, whether or not they give a testimony or preach a sermon on it or not. Would you pray for them? You know, you'd probably say to me this morning, well, I guess I'll pray for them, but I don't know what difference it makes. Well, you need to be quickened by the Word of God this morning, because this passage says that you are helped by prayer. Paul asks them to help him by prayer, verse 11, that the work the, ta- the labor, the toil to help comfort someone that is in affliction is prayer. It's not the only thing we do, but it is a main thing that we do. Will you pray for them by name? Will you pray for them by name? Members, will you pray for the other members of the church by name? We give out those church directories to the membership so that you can pray through it. Will you make it your habit? I'll tell you, I'll, I'll give you a way to start. Think of somebody on that role that rubs you the wrong way. I'm sure there's one. It's probably Matt Watson. Go find that picture in there, that pictorial directory, and very first thing that you do is I want you to pray for that person by name. Do you know how I've I've actually practiced this? Don't ask me who it was. (laughs) I've actually practiced this. I'm going to ask you, I'm going to say something. You know how hard it is to stay upset with somebody that you pray for by name? It's harder. I'm not saying you can't do it, but it's harder. Pray for them by name. Pray for that person. And and what happens is through prayer, we are helped. I don't even understand. It's not like a cosmic slot machine, like prayers go up, blessings come down. It's not exactly like that. But somewhere in the equation of prayer, God is pleased to move through the prayers of his people to comfort us. So pray. Pray. It's woefully inefficient, but highly effective. We want to go do something. And certainly, if, if you can help someone with physical needs, meet a, meet a need, see a need, meet a need, all for it. But I'm just saying that the example 
that we have here is Christ withdrew to lonely places to pray for his people, and we should too. Sometimes the most efficient thing we can do to help the brothers and sisters with patience and endurance is to have the patience ourselves to endure in prayer. Verse 6 calls us to patient endurance and encourages us along the way. It says in verse 7, Our hope for you is firm, it's unshaken, for we know that you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. That word share, it comes from the word family koinonia. There used to be a church in the area called koinonia. It's the Greek word that means fellowship or to share is the rendering here. It could be like this, Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that you fellowship in our sufferings. There's like a fellowship within those that are co-sufferers. And so because we share or fellowship in sufferings, we also share in our comfort. There's a, a reciprocal relationship there for the people of God. We don't suffer always differently than those around us suffer that are unbelievers, but we suffer with great purpose. We suffer in a way that we know that Christ is bringing meaning out of the storm and out of the pain. So our second point after God communicates with us for comfort is God shares his very self for comfort. He shares his mercy. He shares himself as a comforter, his attributes, himself as a trinity. Have you ever thought about the fact that God shares himself as a trinity? The father of mercy here. You think of the son who gave himself for us. Think of the spirit. God had perfect fellowship in himself before before eternity past began for us, before the creation of everything that you see. And he's inviting us into that fellowship with his perfect self. And he's taking us, even though we have sinned and we have broken fellowship with God and broken faith with God through his own initiative, he is taking us and bringing us back into fellowship. And so that gives us the the foundational grounding principle to walk through suffering when we really don't understand why. So God communicates, he comforts us through really sharing himself with us. I, I think if you'll meditate on that, it's just going to blow your mind. He, he comforts us through sharing himself with us. The God of all comfort comforts us through sharing himself uh, with us. And, and then finally, he comforts us by sharing his community with us. And just think about that. Imagine a world without a church. And then imagine the church without the world. And imagine God recrafting the world for his church. There's a lot going on there, isn't there? It's your mind kind of ping around on that. I believe that this text intimates that God offers comfort to us through his covenant community. Don't look at the church as all liability. Look at it as asset. Certainly it requires something of you, but it, it offers you something too. And I, I, I want to I circle the wagons though and say that it is important that we share not only the gospel of God with, with one another, but also our very selves. This kind of stoicism that keeps us operating at the level of logos and ethos only and not feeling with the body is not biblical. It's not spiritual. I want to ask you a very pointed question that I asked myself this week in preparation for this sermon. If my grandpa taught me to be stoic in groups of people, even the church, And if God's Word teaches me to invest myself one to another with real feelings and real emotions, if those two authorities in my life don't say the same thing, do I go with my granddad or do I go with God the Father through the Word? I go with the Word, don't I? Some of you this morning need to think about that as I need to think about that because I was kind of taught this, this kind of stoic version of Christianity where I just, you don't get hurt if you don't get too close. The problem with being that risk averse is you don't get helped if you don't get too close. There is an engagement factor with the body of Christ, with the church, that this scripture assumes. It just assumes it. It just assumes that we are going to be wrapped up in one another, gathering out like we are today to fellowship, but also knowing each other's lives. It assumes we're going to know details about each other's lives and that we are going to seek the accountability of the Spirit by praying to God Himself for one another, that we're not going to just count on the horizontal to fix everything. We're going to take the things we know about one another and lift them up to God in prayer. I'll tell you, I would be thrilled if as an application of the sermon is after, as you're going out today, you slow down in the foyer long enough to talk to somebody, find out something that's going on with them, and on the spot, just pray with them. 
Now, I'm not talking about like yell loud enough so everybody knows that you applied the sermon. I don't mean that. Like, I'm not saying like, oh, but no, no, we don't need that. Just, just very quietly, just go right up next to him. Put your hands on Okay, Jill, Jill, thanks for sharing that with me. I'm going to pray right now. Dear Heavenly Father, pray for Jill in such and such need, and I just please help her. And I'm going to be praying for her this week. Help me to remember to pray and help her, comfort her. In Jesus' name, amen. And I just, I mean, I just want to wonder, kind of wonder if that was an application. If we wouldn't, uh, well, I know our voice would be heard in heaven, right? I just wonder if we wouldn't be comforted in ways that we... I mean, faith is the evidence of things unseen, the substance of things hoped for. I wonder if that would... Notice, I'm not, I'm not just trying to be squishy here. I'm, I'm standing on the Word of God. I'm saying we have to behave certain ways. Sin's got to be called out. I'm just saying the covenant community, God is making for Himself a people, and He is sharing that people with us. That's what He's calling unbelievers into. And if you're an unbeliever, He's calling you into His family that will not just be a universal church family, but the, of the 114 times that church is used in the New Testament, 104 times it's used of the church locally, He intends for your adoption to be expressed not just universally and nebulously, but specifically and locally with the people there at Corinth in this letter, but here at Mount Vernon. He wants you to be specifically in a membership with a people. And so that's an application here in our third point. God comforts through communication. He comforts through giving of himself and, and, and offering of himself as the chief example, as, as, as his attributes for us. But he, he, he comforts us through the covenant people. And it's so encouraging to see God's work amongst us. Professor George Scipion, Professor at Reformed Theological Seminary in Pittsburgh, uh, wrote this in this month's table talk. And it's, it, there's some copies available as you walk out today if you want to pick up one. Here's what he wrote. It's on pages 64 and 65. He said, As God's adopted children, we suffer for a variety of reasons. We suffer because of Adam's sin. God's providential poundings are meant to drive us to repentance toward God and faith in Christ Jesus. Second, we suffer because of sinful thoughts and desires and words and actions. Sin always has results. Yet God's mercy and grace calls us back to the good shepherd. Third, he said, we also suffer as a target of the world and the devil because we are united to Christ. We, and this is the one that I think we're drilling in on today. When we suffer, whatever the cause, we hurt. Like a punch to the stomach, Scipion writes, suffering seems to cause all the wind of the Holy Spirit to gush out. We struggle to catch our breath. What do we need? The answer, we need the God of all comfort to hold us as the Spirit rejuvenates us. God's comfort soothes sorrow and distress. And sometimes God uses his people oftentimes to hold you when you need comfort. And listen, when you're holding another member figuratively or literally, friends, you don't always need to tell them. Don't pull the issue of Job's friends. Don't tell them what they need to do. Feel with them and abide with them. Let them be strengthened as God leads it. It's God of all comfort. And he, he wants to guide through us. I'm reminded of Zach Eswine's book, Spurgeon's Sorrows, writing about the Prince of Preacher, Preachers, Charles Spurgeon's spiritual depression. Eswine wrote this. He said, Sorrow teaches us to resist trite views of maturity in Jesus and what Jesus looks like. He said, Sorrow deepens our intimacy with God, enables us to better receive blessings, sheds our pretenses, exposes and roots out our pride, teaches us empathy for one another, allows small kindnesses to loom large. Sorrow teaches us courage for others who face trials. Sorrows are caused by ugly things. But Jesus adopts them, as it were. He brings them into his own counsel. The one who loves even enemies puts our sorrows on probation. He gives them his own heart and provision and house. Living with him, they reform and take on his purpose to promote his intentions. In Jesus, sorrows are reversed and, and foul tidings are thwarted. In other words, our sorrows belong to Jesus for the duration. He invites us into fellowship with him and with his empathy. And we receive it from him in the deeps. Spurgeon cherished a certain picture. The engraver that made it for him portrayed the moment in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress in which Christian panics and he's swallowed up by the deeps of the river going under. And the portrait shows Christian's companion named Hopeful pushing up with his arm around Christian and lifting up his hand shouting, Fear not, brother, I feel the bottom. And with this picture in mind, the preacher so familiar with sorrows then rejoiced with those listening to him. This is just what Jesus does in our trials, Spurgeon proclaimed. He puts his arm around us, points up and says, fear not, the water may be deep, but the bottom is good. 
We in sorrow have a Savior. We have a Savior that was tempted and tried in every way, yet never failed. And he will not fail you, not. The Lord can take something bad and make something good out of it and use his people to comfort you in the meantime. We don't always know how he does it. We just know that he does it. But I really don't want to zero in on that today alone. And here's why. I think those are trite things to say like Job's friends when we're going through afflictions. I'm so moved by the fact that the Apostle Paul opens this letter with saying to the people, I want you to know I despaired of my very life. I want you to know that I had doubts. I want you to know that I felt, look at verse 9 if you think I'm making this up. We felt, we felt, it says, we felt we had received the sentence of death. He's so honest, and he says, but the purpose of that was not just these other things we said, but it was to help us rely on God who raises the dead, not to rely on self. I open the sermon with, we need more of God and not of self. We don't need self-reliance to get ourselves through this life. We need God. We need His attributes, His presence, if we're going to make it through suffering. The difference between, I think, church families that kind of have something that uh, looks like church and church families that really do life together are those that are acutely aware of the sufferings of its people. And there are good churches around. I'm not saying ours is the only church that cares like that. I believe there's, there's several good churches. We often mention them by prayer, by name for prayer here. But I just want to encourage you today uh, to pick a church here, there, or yonder, if you haven't already picked one and you're looking for one, that shares the sufferings of the people, that doesn't always have tried answers. And for those of you that have covenantally committed to this church, I'm going to tell you, uh, we're going to let you down and you're, we're going to let one another down. And I just want to encourage you to abide. Unless there's a principial gospel reason not to, let's abide together and, and let us together see through time and through the covenant community how God wants to comfort us through abiding together, uh, praying for one another. He says here after he exposes himself by sharing, he says, help us by prayer so that many will give thanks, verse 11, on behalf for the blessings granted us through the prayers of many. Uh, I think that that is a wonderful, wonderful conclusion of this text because what Paul is saying with emotional distress is, I've been through all this. I've felt the bottom. I know it's solid, and you can too. Pray for me. That'll help me, and I want you to know that I'm praying for you. He says elsewhere, I'm praying for you. I'm here for you. God means to reconcile our fellowship, to bring comfort through his communication of his word, through his sharing of his very self, his character in himself, and his sharing of his own covenant community with you as means to help restore fellowship that was broken in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I'd like to ask that you would expose our minds as well as our very hearts and insides to this word, that we would feel it as well as know it and live it. And help us, Lord, to be sensitive in times of affliction, not to be a people that offer trite responses, that browbeat people, but people that abide and that care and that feel. We have this great example of how not only you, our Lord, felt, but how the Apostle Paul felt too. And we thank you for it today. And God, as I've stumbled over words and not been as clear as I could be some places, I'm going to ask you, the great comforter, to comfort the one today that needs it the most. Comfort, please. Help them. I'm praying it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. While you're meditating on these things, continue to meditate as our ushers come to receive your prayer requests on your tear-off and your offerings.